Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym, and the acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to have Justice Adrienne Nelson on the podcast to talk about her journey to becoming the first African-American to sit on Oregon State Supreme Court in the state's 159-year history. We want to talk about her passion for ensuring that the system works for everyone and her mission of bridging justice for all. There is no doubt that she is a pioneer and a trailblazer, and she's creating a path for others to follow. She's made extraordinary strides and making the trial bench more receptive to the needs and experiences of diverse and underserved communities in Oregon. When Oregon's Governor Kate Brown appointed Justice Nelson to the Oregon Supreme Court in 2018, she said there was no doubt that this was the right appointment. She believed wholeheartedly that we were getting the best of the best. Justice Nelson is a respected civil rights champion whose perspective on the bench moves all of us closer to our shared vision for justice for all. I'm excited to share her with you because not only is she an inspiration to me and so many others, she's my friend and she's my Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority sister and a woman on fire for justice for us all. With that, let me welcome Judge Adrian Nelson to the show. Welcome, Adrian. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I tell you, I have been so jazzed all day just Looking forward to the opportunity just to connect with you and share you with our audience. I just think, you know, your story is just so inspirational. And what you are doing today as your platform for ensuring justice for all is just so critical, especially at a time like this. So before we launch into all of that and really kind of unpack all that you're doing in the justice system, I want to give my audience an opportunity just to learn a little bit more about you. I know all about you and I love you. And so tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up? So I grew up in Arkansas, specifically a small town named Gurdon, G-U-R-D-O-N. I always spell it because, you know, with the Southern Ash accent, people wonder, now, what is she saying? (laughs) Gurdon, Arkansas, town of about 2,700 people when I was growing up, but it's gotten smaller because Mm. it's small town America. And, you know, small towns are not keeping this population is declining. I grew up in a very close-knit family. Mm -hmm. I had my mom, my stepfather, and my brother who lived with us and across the land because we had houses facing on different streets for my grandparents, my mother's parents. And across the street from them was my grandfather's grandmother. So I had three houses that I hopped from, but mainly my grandparents and our home all throughout my life. And so... I was a happy kid. I was a compliant child. I was curious and I was in lots of activities and my family were my biggest influences. So my grandparents were my favorite people. I had friends, but I could tell you they were my favorite people. I spent many, many, many hours and most of my summer and weekends up under them learning about life. I love it. Well, and I know your mom was an educator in the community. And that had a huge impact on you. Talk a little bit about just how important education was in your household and and what type of opportunities you had just to learn, um, Mm -hmm. given she was an educator. So my mom is an educator, as was my grandmother. 
as was her father. So education was a foundation of everything that we did. It was an expectation that we would be lifelong learners, which I am, and that my brother and I would always do our absolute best in any academic setting we were in. And as long as we did our best, that was good enough for them. But if we did not, <laughs> that was not acceptable. They also wanted us to understand that what people say now, that we are not our zip code, was mm. a reality for us. So then did our view of the small town I grew up in to take us to all kind of cultural events. I was in brownies, then Girl Scouts. I took piano lessons. You know, I was in dance classes. They wanted me to learn not only my subject matters in school, but learn about the arts and to think about how I could live a bigger life on my own terms. So they totally believed in education and the continuous uh, learning that helps you grow as a person. They didn't ever want us to be stagnant. They always wanted us to continue to grow. Wow, I love that. And I love what you said, you know, we are not our zip code, right? Meaning that you can still explore the world right where you are and, and really understand all that the world has to offer. That is amazing. How is that statement, you know, really helped you navigate your growth? I mean, just to think about that, how did it expand your vision? That statement in and of itself, you know, as we talk about that today, what does that mean in today's world when many times because of where we come from, sometimes we might feel like we're limited? You know, I think it's a really interesting concept. Last year, I spoke at Girl State mm-hmm. and it was really, they gave me a time slot that was not the greatest right before lunch on the last day of their week-long experience. So the young women were tired. <laughs> so <laughs> them woke up when I started talking about you and not your zip code. And a wide variety of students came up to speak to me, particularly from rural communities, mm-hmm. saying, how can I compete? Because I, I didn't have access to these AP classes. And I mm-hmm. said, let me tell you something. You can always expand your mind. And I told him, I said, when I was young enough to be able to walk to our library, we had one public library, I won a reading contest, not because I was trying to be taught, but I was so into reading and I read everything in my age category plus the one above because it really opened my mind. And it let me know, even though I didn't have someone right in front of me that looked exactly like me or had my life experience, I could read about other people and take parts of their life and how they went outside of their comfort zones and where they were and do the same thing and just create the life I wanted. That I I didn't have to be with people that I was. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So essentially what you're saying is your zip code doesn't determine your destiny or your success. I love that. (laughs) Absolutely. It does not. And anyone who tries to, they're wrong because it is your life. You have one life. You get to live it your way. Now you will learn from different people. You will get information from other people. You will get advice from other people, but you get to incorporate it however much or not at all based on what you want for your life and you get to share your own life and your values and how you live. I love that. I love that. So powerful. Well, when you think about your experiences growing up, right, that really shaped you to become who you are, you know, what stands out as a defining moment or a series of defining moments that really helps you find your roar and really help you determine which direction you want it to go in? So, you know, as we've talked about education and learning was just really foundational components of my upbringing and my growing up. I loved school. And it was clear that I was academically proficient, if you will, if not doing extremely well. And it was identified that I could be the first Black valedictorian since they had integrated our school system, which was something I hadn't thought about. But clearly, my Black teachers had thought about and they talked to my mom, who was their colleague, although Mm -hmm. in a different school. So when I went into high school, I understood that I had a responsibility, an expectation of, if you will, to do my very best, not only for myself, because it would open up doors, but to also break down stereotypes Mm -hmm. of people who look like me. So I just was told to do my very best, and I did. And my senior year of high school, everything changed for me. I had achieved the highest grade point average of my graduating class, and I was slated to be the valedictorian. 
until one of my friends, actually the first friend I made when I went to our public school, let me know that there were some school board members and influential community members, including her family, that did not want the exact type of acknowledgement, valedictorian, to go to someone who looked like me because they didn't want to diffuse the stereotype that white people were better than Blacks. Mm. Now, she told me, I wouldn't have known had she not said something to me at the beginning of our senior year. So I listened, and I told my mother when I went home with him throughout my senior year. And then as the senior year was coming to a close, and I was sent multiple times to get my class rank, it was never calculated. We had a school board meeting about, I don't know, a few weeks before my graduation, and I was made to come. It became public in our town what was going on. My mother engaged an attorney who happened to be a black man, John W. Walker, and he was the first attorney of color I had ever seen in my life. Wow. He was also very, very well dressed. You could tell he was accomplished. He had a beautiful car. Those things that people will say, who is that? Right. <laughs> but he took a special interest in me and he stood up for me that night. And he told the school district if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, that they would get sued. And the very next day, the principal of my high school calculated the scores of all of us who would be in the top 10. And I was named. It forever changed my life because I got in what I had earned and Mm -hmm. I deserved. But it totally overwhelmed and changed my life because I was in the middle of a controversy I didn't create, you know, it split my town. Mm. I had the black students who for the very majority of them in my class, that was their only graduation that they would ever have. Mm. They told me if I wasn't named, they wouldn't walk. So I, in that moment, being in a controversy, I also learned the value of community, the love of sacrifice. Mm. When you take a stand for what's right. So it really was a defining moment for me. I had to decide at 18, was I going to be part of a solution or part of the problem? And standing on the sideline meant I was part of the problem, that I needed to engage to make this world better than I was born, and I needed to create community wherever I was. And it was hard, but it's something that's defined my life and something that I continue to use until this day in every aspect of my life, in every place I've lived. Wow, so powerful. Oh my gosh, so at an early age, right, you understood the importance of using your voice, standing up for what's right, and whatever the cost is. I mean, right is right and wrong is wrong um, at the end of the day. Yes. And you had a, a community of people that started with your mom and your family, and then that attorney coming from a different county or city per se and saying, you know, we're gonna stand in the gap for her. Right. We're going to make sure that it goes right for her and that it doesn't go wrong for anyone else. Right. Absolutely. And ironically, he took a special interest in me. And so for three of my four summers in college, I actually worked for him in his law office and he got me connected to other organizations, in particular the NACP Legal Defense Fund. Mm -hmm. They gave me a scholarship for undergraduate. And when they realized I was going to law school, they extended one for me to go to law school. So I just had community continue to pour in to me. And I that's why I try to create a pipeline for students so that they can, A, enter the law if they would like to. But if they don't, B, for them to find what makes them happy and to fearlessly go after it and help them know that they have people that are reaching for them and support them, and have them, and they're standing on the shoulders of others, and they should never forget it. Oh, I love that. So powerful. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, because everything that you just articulated in terms of your passion for creating a pipeline and giving back, right? We're seeing that manifest here in the state of Oregon, and i like to unpack that a little bit more. So let's launch into your career in the legal system, right? And obviously, what you just talked about is really kind of birthed that passion in you, right? I'm sure that experience as a young girl, and you said, okay, you know, I can see the importance of justice in my life and I want to maybe do that for others. And so I think it kind of took you down a path of the legal system and you've had an amazing career. 
So tell us what led you to pursue that law career and who were some of the people who inspired you in the field? Well, John Walker was the first person to make me think, you know, maybe the law is a helping profession that I wanted to consider. Because mm-hmm. before that, you know, I had told everybody who would listen that I was going to be a pediatrician. <laughs> but then when I got to college and I got in my class and I had had many a lab, I realized how many more labs over decades that I have to be in, you know, and I said, mm, I think I'm going to explore other options. <laughs> and okay. so I found that the law was well suited for me because I went and I took an aptitude test to see, you know, what was something that I would have an affinity for, you know, could be successful in. And I really got to thinking about how important the law was because it not only had it worked well in my life, I realized it could work well in other people's lives because John Walker did a lot of civil rights litigation, particularly around class actions around school discipline cases Mm. that is working until today. And so he was someone that I thought a lot of. And then when I was considering law school, I had looked around. Of course, he wanted me to go to his alma mater. And I said, okay, I'll look at it, but I don't know where I'm going to go. I ended up at the University of Texas at Austin. And as I had gone down to a uh, student weekend to visit the school, go to a class, see if it was a good fit. As I was waiting to get on the plane, there were people deboarding. And Mm -hmm. one of the people who was deboarding was Barbara Jordan. And I could hear her speaking as they were pushing her up the ramp. And she happened to look at me as I was Mm -hmm. standing there. And she said, well, hello, young lady. (laughs) I said, I am going to the University of Texas School of Law because I could potentially take a class with Barbara Jordan. It didn't happen. That brief moment to see a living legend, a person who's for what was right, I said, oh, my gosh, she changed, moved to Oregon. I met lots of wonderful women. But the first African-American female judge was Mercedes Diaz. She took me under her wing. I was a young single parent. She would call me over to her house. We would spend time. My daughter would play at my feet, you know, while we were talking and stuff. And when I went from being a public defender into a private firm, she came early to the firm to let them know that I had a support system. Wow. And she let me know at that lunch that we had that day, she came early. We went to lunch, which was next door, and she told me how she hoped she lived long enough to see me go on the bench. She was the first person to say I should be a judge or she saw me being a judge. And because of my love and respect for her, I was totally blown away that she said that, but I couldn't say, no, that's not what's supposed to happen to me. But I tucked it away because I I thought about what does she see? Mm -hmm. And she passed away in the spring of 2005. And I began to think a lot about her because I loved her very deeply. And I was grieving for her. Mm -hmm. And an opening came up for a judicial appointment. And I realized I had been doing work in the community since I came to Oregon to push diversity because I truly believe our legal community, including our benches, need to be reflective of the communities we serve, that it was my time to put myself out there and outside of my comfort zone. And literally, two months later, after putting my name in on my birthday, I got appointed, which made me the second female judge in the state of Oregon. And I thought about her. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about her all the time because now there's generations who never even knew who she was. Mm-hmm. But I try to do my part to keep her memory alive and her importance because she was such an incredible person, as was Judge Roosevelt Robinson, who was an incredible African-American judge who took a lot of time with me, too. So I was very fortunate when I moved to Oregon, mm-hmm. even though it was a small legal community. All of the people who I felt were pillars saw something in me and wanted to develop me and connect with me. And I was just grateful because to me, again, that was the theme of community. My community was reaching out to me and I needed to reach back, take that hand and see what they wanted me to do. Because Judge Robinson would have me do 
certain volunteer opportunities. Mm-hmm. He would get off a and recommend that I replace him. And then I would end up being like the chair of the president. And I would call him and he would say, I knew you'd do a better job than I would do. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know about that. But he said, I know that you're going to speak up and you're going to do us all proud. Yep. You're blown away by that. And I, I can only imagine, right? Because what you're talking about, that's the power of mentorship and sponsorship and the power of community seeing you where maybe you couldn't see yourself just yet, but painting that vision and picture for you. And I just love how Judge Mercedes Diaz planted that seed in you before she left this earth, right? It's yeah. basically manifested itself because of that mentorship and that coaching and just her love to see you be successful. That's exciting. Well, let's talk about that, right? You know, you, you had your judicial appointment in 2006. And then in 2018, you were appointed as the first African-American and African-American woman to serve as an Oregon State Supreme Court Justice. You're a pioneer. You're a trailblazer. You're a history maker, right? What did these appointments mean to you? And when did it all sink in, in terms of the significance of these accomplishments? Well, I can tell you when I went on the bench in 2006, I understood that it was important. But again, I was thinking about continuing the legacy of those who were before me, that I needed to be very clear about what that was, because at the time I was appointed in 2006, there was one other state court judge who got ill and he passed away. So there was like a nine to 10 month period, maybe even 11 month period, where I was the only black judge in the state of Oregon. And so there was a lot of media attention about me. Mm-hmm. And so I am an introvert by birth, but I've learned to be extroverted when necessary because <laughs> right. I don't like other people, you know, deciding what's going to happen for me. So I thought I'd have to get over that insecurity of not wanting to speak up and figure out how to use my voice. Right. I like the <laughs> so I realized very quickly that it was important for people to see me in the courtroom. Because I had people come just to see me sitting on the bench, not just law, but people from the community. And people would say, I never thought I'd see this in my life. Mm. Wow. Defendants would say that. And so I knew it was. And I realized that I was an ordinary person who was on an extraordinary journey. And I also understood that not everybody was happy about it and that I, you know, would have people distracting and saying things, but I always stay true to myself. My grandmother was always clear to me that I needed to do my very best every day. And at the end of the night, at the end of the day, when I looked in the mirror, as I was getting ready to go to bed, I needed to take an assessment and whatever didn't happen the way I wanted, kind of give some thought to it, how to make it better, forgive myself, get a good night's rest and start over. So that's what I always tried to do so that I could understand I'd be overwhelmed by the enormity of it all. So I was to be, you know, this black young woman, this black girl who became a black woman from the deep South, who was an attorney, who became a judge in Oregon. Because think about that, Arkansas, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a success. But if you are in the space that you are supposed to occupy and mm-hmm. you are living what is supposed to happen for you, you answer those calls and you prepare yourself for the opportunities that you may not see. Wow. So powerful. I'm just like, you're absolutely right. I mean, wow, that just in and of itself, right? You know, I think the universe will open up to you as you begin to move in the direction of what you're called to do is what I hear you say. And all the resources you need will align and do what it needs to do to push you in that direction. So powerful. So powerful. And you talked a little bit about, right, just I'm sure the shock of it all for a lot of people, right? Because many said that they never thought they would see an African-American or an African-American woman sitting on the bench in the state's highest court. And so, you know, I'm sure when people saw you, they might have stared a bit, right? But with amazement and excitement. And I'm hoping that that was what you experienced. Did you ever have anything else or any problems or challenges that you encountered along the way simply because they were a little bit of surprise to see you sitting there? Well, you know, not being on the Supreme Court, I can tell you that, you know, on the trial court bench, 
I was younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have a family of good genes. I come from good genes. So I look sometimes younger than what I actually am. Mm-hmm. And so people were questioning a lot of things about me. So I would have to kind of go through a checklist. Are they saying something to me because I'm black, because I'm female, because I'm young, or is this because they treat everybody this way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had a friend on the bench who was a pioneer herself, who was the first openly gay woman on the court where I was, who would be a touchstone for me. So I had all these different people that didn't have the same experience as me be my touchstones and support me and help me navigate things. But in general, I never got a lot of negativity questions about, did she get there because she's black? Mm -hmm. Is she got an affirmative action? Nah. But my work spoke for itself. So I'm not a naive person. I am a hopeful person. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a practical person. So I know that there are all kinds of comments being made about me. But I don't focus on that because I know who I am. Absolutely. And I know who I am. And I'm grounded. And mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing what I need to do. And the work will speak for itself. You know, I have always tried to live my best life. Mm-hmm. You know, I really feel that I don't let other people determine what's going to happen to me. You know, even though the process to becoming a judge the path, if you will, is political. Mm-hmm. It's not as political as others because it's a nonpartisan. So there's a part of what I do that is never, I don't take political stances. I have to remain neutral because we never know who's going to appear before us or the issues. And people need to feel like they're going to be treated equally and fairly and everything's going to be considered based on the record mm-hmm. and the evidence that they present. And so I'm very mindful of that. But I also understand the world that we live in. And mm-hmm. I also try to bring my whole self to work it's about how you analyze cases in different ways, how you can see it based on what your perspective of the law is. You can get really technical if I'm a textualist or, you know, if, I, if I'm a, you know, I think of the, the construction of the law a certain way, all of those things. But at the end of the day, the law has many interpretations. <laughs> And so we need to talk about what's the common ground to determine cases. I love being on the the Supreme Court because while I love being on the trial court and I was there for a long time, there was a part of the trial court that I couldn't do that I get to do now. And that is think deeply and write about issues Mm -hmm. because that's just not how trial courts are geared. You are dealing with people, which I loved, but I also wanted to, think deeply, and write about the law. It's what made me fall in love with the law in the first place because it had worked for me and I was curious about it. And I went to law school. So I feel like being on the Supreme Court has become a full circle moment for me. You know, would I have thought about being on the Supreme Court five years ago? Probably not. When I decided in 2017 to put my name in, it was because they didn't have a trial court voice on the Supreme Court. The two justices who had trial court experience had retired. Therefore, there was no one to kind of bring that perspective of what happens at the trial court level. And I felt like I was well suited to do it. Plus, it would allow me to think deeply and write. (laughs) So that was my moment. So I feel like I'm supposed to be where I am. And to be honest with you, yes, I am the first Black person to ever sit on an Oregon appellate court, including the Supreme Court, I am probably the most visible of my colleagues because I've been so active in so many things. It is also because I'm Black, I'm sure. <laughs> and I kind of sit out with everybody else. But people know my work. Absolutely. And they talk about it. And my colleagues talk about it. They're like, you just don't know how many people you are. Because it doesn't feel like you want. Wow. And I love what you said, too. And I'm sure this was taught growing up too. you know, I know it was for me is there's no need to speak at times. Just allow your work to speak for you. Right. And that keeps you out of many different arguments. Right. Because people can argue with the body of work that you deliver. And if you take the name off the body of work, the body of work will stand on its own. And that's the most important thing. That's right. You know, because there were distractions 
uh, that I wasn't able to keep up, that I wasn't going to be able to be able to engage in the discussions that we have. None of these people had any idea of who I was or even really worked with me. But, you know, they felt comfortable saying it. I didn't need to respond because I knew that none of it was true. And my work has spoken for itself. That's a drop the mic statement right there. All righty then. (laughs) So talking about the importance of diversity and really um, community engagement, and I know that's the forefront of your leadership. And so how diverse is the judiciary and what role do you think diversity plays in the court's mission and what direction is it trending today? Well, I think that it is very important that our judiciary is diverse because it needs that we serve. And I think that by seeing different types of people, when people come in out to our courts to use it, to receive the benefit of its promises, they can have trust and confidence that the system is going to work as we described. Mm-hmm. I often told tours that, uh, school tours that would come into our, our courtroom, that once they would leave my courtroom, I asked them to go to our presiding court because there was a picture of all of the judges in Loma County when I was on the trial court bench that had been uh, elected to the circuit court bench since its inception. And for a long period of time, people looked the exact same. And then it started to trickle. There would be a couple of different looking people. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. as we got Closer into the 90s, maybe a little bit more. And I watched students and the adults with them understand that visual. And then it opened up another conversation. I think I can do that is what young people would say to me. I can be a judge. Absolutely. The answer is absolutely. And we would have a whole different conversation because people often don't understand what they haven't experienced, mm-hmm. and they also can't imagine what they don't see. But if they see someone that looks like them, it opens up the possibility. And I believe in possibilities. Wow. I love that. And speaking of that, right, just uh, in our state, being able to see you and, you know, so many others that are coming behind you, I know that you've heard the statement, you know, and we just talked about it, right? Uh, You can't be what you can't see. And so having you and so many others that look like African-American people, Hispanic people, and then you can aspire to be that. I know we were able to witness firsthand your Black girl magic, as they say, here in Oregon. And then in 2018, we were able to witness the political history again in one county in Texas, Harris County, which is the third largest county in the U.S. 19 Black women were running for judicial seats in one county. And all 19 were confirmed as winners in their respective races. Another amazing display of Black girl magic. What was that moment like for you to witness? I know you weren't in Texas, but I know you it's a sisterhood. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I felt the sisterhood. And <laughs> I was with pride because I actually knew a couple of the women who were running. And mm-hmm. so I was staying in contact with them about how they were trying to fundraise Because in Texas, people do elect judges along party lines, which is very interesting. And so I have connections in Texas because I went to law school in Texas and I'm involved in organizations that are national. But it was a beautiful, beautiful moment for me. And I remember when Essence did a photo Mm -hmm. of all of the courtroom. And I just looked at that because, you know, I have never had an opportunity in my career to work in a law firm with another black person. Wow. Nor have I ever been on a bench with another black woman. I've been with other diverse people, but I've never sat on the bench with a black woman. And I was so proud that they were going to be able to be each other's support system and touch each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just thought, you know what? We're making the system fulfill its promises mm-hmm. to everyone. And it was just beautiful. So, you know, when Mattel did the Barbie doll, that's a judge. And she is a white woman, a black woman, a Latina mm-hmm. woman. I have my Mattel. I have my Mattel female <laughs> judge doll. I got one for Christmas. Wow. That's so powerful what you just said, right? Because now as a young girl today, that's something that we can get for Christmas. 
right? As a five or six-year-old, seven-year-old, right? And we can aspire to become that. And I know that's so important to you, your role as a role model and why you spend so much time giving back to young people is to allow them to see what they can be, a vision for their future and the impact that they can drive by learning about the things that you're doing. Wow. So talk about maybe what you're doing to kind of build on this momentum and this changing of the guard that's happening, not just in Oregon and Texas, but really hopefully across the United States to kind of build that pipeline of diverse students who may be interested in law or, you know, understanding how they can change the fabric of our justice system. So I've been pretty strategic in where I want to volunteer. I give myself three opportunities to volunteer in Oregon on different boards. So right now I'm sitting on literary art. And I got to be a judge for the Poetry Slam event in 2019, Verslandia, and the students blew me away. But they were so excited that I was an actual judge, a judge. <laughs> and so they gave me a standing ovation. And so we were, we were feeling the love back and forth. And love so it. my ability makes a difference to the kids, to the young people. And I also am open. I do public speaking. I have to, you know, kind of modulate it, but I go to school sometimes and speak to them. And I speak to large groups of kids for career opportunities. And I also mentor them one-on-one. What I've learned is I don't always tell them what I do for a living because Mm -hmm. I love my daughter. She didn't realize who Judge Diaz was because she saw her on uh, PowerPoint when she was in college. And she was like, why didn't you tell me who she was? I said, because often the best role model, you don't know exactly what they do for a living. You remember how they show up. Mm -hmm. And I want people to remember how I show up. But I also want kids, when they see me, I come off the bench, I talk to them, you know, I let them know they can be anything they want to be. I see young people in the the grocery store and they talk to me because they see me come to their school. And we just have great conversations. And I know it's in my family crazy, but a little bit, you know, makes them a little uncomfortable. Like you just all, we never get any time with me, but I feel like that's part of what I'm supposed to do. It's part of the rent. I'm supposed to be a service, but I also am available to students when they are contemplating going to law school. You know, I'm going to talk with, I'm going to have a career conversation with a Phi Beta Kappa young woman from the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, which is my undergrad on Tuesday because Phi Beta Kappa Society asked me, would I do that? The answer is yes. If I have the time, I will lose the time. And when young lawyers come in, I'm honest with them about the challenges in the legal system. And I'm willing to be a resource to them. And then when they become my colleagues as members of the bar, I continue to make myself available to them. I mm-hmm. feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. Absolutely. And then absolutely. I do, I, you know, we can talk about specific organizations later if you want to. But that's what I do as a core. And I think that that's important because I feel like a part of what people don't understand about lawyers and judges is that we're part of the human race, too. And we have to have. No, and I'm not saying it. I mean, there are a lot of lawyer jokes. There just are. That's the reality of it. And there's a reason for it. (laughs) And, And I understand that. But I often get more than anything. Wow, you're a nice person. And I'm like, I'm glad you see that. That's wonderful because that changes how people may view what I do, mm-hmm. you know, or it, and it makes them feel comfortable because they will often say, I am so glad that you're where you are. It makes me feel like I can sleep a little better at night. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel better. And I'm like, that's really interesting to me. And I'm glad that I can do that. I'm glad that I can do that. Wow, that's awesome. Well, listen, you know, right now we're speaking of that, right? And and having you where you sit today, it gives me a sense of hope. I'll just be honest with you, because we're living in what feels like a moment of awakening around systemic racism. Yeah, People are literally spilling into the streets to protest how the criminal justice system is treating African-Americans. You know, the machinery of justice is vast and it's interconnected, just as we've been talking. And it's so easy for people to feel helpless and hopeless and driving change. How can people like us help to people like you create a judicial system that lives up to the ideal of equal justice for all? How can we partner? Well, I think what we have to do is that we have to engage in our country's history and promises. 
And then I, I think we also need to look at all of it because often when I speak, I said, we often have chosen to forget the parts that we don't think are so pretty, mm-hmm. the mistakes, the deployments, the embarrassment, you know, and we aren't fully embracing our legacy. And if, if I haven't learned anything, I am the sum total of every experience I have ever had in my life, good, bad, up. It has shaped me into who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to confront those dark parts of our legacy, such as slavery and the unrest that's happening now, because I think we can learn from our darkness and our greatness. So I think what everyone is doing is grappling with that history. Now, I also understand it brings up a lot of uncomfortable emotions, but we have to get through that. And then you have to say, what are we going to do to dismantle what should not be there and should have never been there? to make our country fulfill its promises. And I think that we really have to talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And equity is going to mean that some people have to give up things that they used to have so that the others may have it. And that's going to be a really hard conversation for people to have. But I think we're at this moment. I call it a moment of clarity and reflection. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to have some clarity and reflection about why there's so much unrest in this country. It's real. And inequality is not merely a problem of individual actions, but it's a consequence of our institutions and social structures. And so we have to acknowledge it, and then we have to partner with one another, and not just for like a small amount of time, because we're talking about 400 plus years. So this is going to take some sustained ongoing commitment to really making change the way it should happen. And I want to say this, you know, on most court buildings, there is a Martin Luther King quote. And I'd like to focus on that for a moment. We only use the first sentence, but I want to read the entire quote and say something. Martin Luther King is often quoted as saying, quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What people also don't say and I often speak about is this, what he said. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly, end quote. And the reason why I wanted to say that is about what can we do? We have to remember that there's no me without we. If you flip me upside down, it becomes we. If you flip we upside down, it becomes me. We're all connected together. So we can't act like what's happening does only affects other people. It affects all of us, even you. And what are we going to do to make this world the way it's supposed to be? And it's going to take work. And it's going to take discomfort. And it's going to take rebuilding. But I can tell you, as you talk about on this podcast, Roar, it can be a beautiful new place to be. That's so powerful. Gosh, I was sitting here listening to you and I'm just, it just gave me so much hope in in what you said. And you were obviously talking about the vision that you see and how we can work together. And then the part you're right, we're all tied in a single garment of destiny. We are all in Mm -hmm. together is what you're saying. And I gasp because if we can all just get that, oh my gosh our country would be so much Mm -hmm. better because of it. It's not us against him against me or him against her. It's we, it's me. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Adrian. Powerful. Wow. Wow. So I know I only have a few more minutes with you, but you know, you you and I, we can talk every day. This for sure. (laughs) Just to build on that. Right. And I know, you know, to your point and, and governor Brown was just so elated when she made the appointment for all the reasons we've just discussed here on this podcast today, you are just amazing. Just your lens on people and the ability to bring people together united, really enabling this country to be a better place. Talk about some of the ideas and programs that you've implemented as a judge that focus on bringing the voices together for good that ensure fairness and equality and justice for all. You know, I know you've been doing some creative, innovative things in the courts to make sure that the reality that Dr. King 
spoke about, we could absolutely live today. So a couple of things I'll highlight. I'm currently the chair of our Oregon Supreme Court Council on Inclusion and Fairness. And with that, we're really trying to make sure our courts are accessible as well as educating our staff and the public on all kinds of projects so that we can best serve those in our communities. So I do that work in an umbrella. But two things that I've done that I'm extremely proud of, one is the most recent, which is there was a group of us, uh, federal and state lawyers and judges, who for the last few years have been working on an unconscious bias uh, video for jurors to play juror orientation when they come in to serve on juries, as well as maybe an individual course, depending on the subject matter of the cases. And we just unveiled that earlier this year, and then the pandemic happened, but we're training the judges, and it's going to be used statewide. We're working on the federal system. Federal system is slower than the state system, but they're working on getting it in the federal Oregon system because we based that video off of a Western Washington district in Washington video, and we made our video more adaptable to what was happening in Oregon, as well as more broadly than the topic of race, which their video was only focused on race because it was many, many years ago that we have to address that come in the different cases. But the first thing that has gotten a lot of attention for me, and it was a hard thing for me, I try to, again, bring my whole self to work. And I was trying to connect my heart with my head. And because of a series of killings, because there have been so many killings in 2015 and 2016, I helped our county, our circuit court, develop a listening session. And I developed it and I facilitated them because it was a way for our courts to hear the community members' experience and concerns with the legal system, as well as to acknowledge to communities of color that they are overrepresented at each stage of the criminal justice system. And we had three sessions that went throughout the county, and our community members trusted us enough, even though their experiences were not always what they had hoped to share their intimate and traumatic experiences and the impact was profound. We made changes in our court system. The DA at the time, the district attorney at the time, Rod Underhill came to all three. He brought his senior team. They made changes in decisions of types of cases and level of cases that were charged. And we had then legislators come, people from corrections, people from probation and parole, as well as lawyers. And community members come and we made sure it was inclusive. We had interpreters and we listened because that's something that judges don't always do. We do a lot of talking. We were trying to be that bridge. And I realized I was in a unique situation because I'm a black woman. I have lived experiences that uniquely prepared me to understand and see the invisible as well as be visible in both worlds and serve as a bridge. I could interpret things for my colleagues and help them understand why it was important for them to show up. Mm-hmm. And I believe it created more diverse appointments. That wasn't the intent, but it was a, an added result. The intent was public trust and confidence building. But we also heard people from the community say, gosh, there aren't that many people that look like me in here that serve in here. You're right. So you don't say, oh, I don't know if you're seeing it correctly. You say, yes, that's true. And then we need to say, Governor, when you start making appointments or when people are elected, what do you want to see? This is not something that should be said, oh, it's really not that important. Clearly, it's something that people want to see, and it does have a value. So it was a really interesting process. And I still get calls. I actually got a call last week with another jurisdiction in Oregon because of what's happening now, they said, oh, I heard you facilitated listening sessions. Can you talk to me about how to do it? Because they're interested in serving their communities, but they also want to do it in a way that is respectful, in a way that's going to create that communication two ways Mm -hmm. so that they can learn better. And I try to do those types of 
for projects. And I think it's really important. I have a PowerPoint presentation of the legal aspect of the legal. It's the legal aspect of living black in Oregon, because wow. people don't understand the history of the state, how while it came in as a state that was free, meaning that it didn't have exclusions. You know, it didn't incorporate slavery. There were exclusions where they didn't want black people and other people of color to live here. And there were other laws put in place from homestead to certain type of lash laws and other things that created the communities and where we live intentionally. Mm-hmm. And so in 19, the late 90s, there was a day of acknowledgement where all of this language was taken out of the Constitution in our state, but the results remain. And that is why you're seeing the outcry in certain ways today, because it's all been very complicated and going on for decades. Absolutely. Well, we are certainly at a critical inflection point across the U.S., and, and certainly Oregon is part of that. And so I'm hoping that, uh, to your point, that we will this will lead us to a greater discourse and conversation around what's happening and how we can start to change. We can't erase history but we can certainly create a preferred future for us all. Absolutely. You know, I want to talk about something that happened to you in 2019. It's just such an honor and recognition of your impact in the state, in your profession, in your community. Um, In 2019, the North Clackamas School District School Board proposed to name its newest high school, Adrian C. Nelson High School, in your honor. And it's set to open in fall of 2021. And that just is such a tremendous recognition, again, of who you are and the impact that you've had. Talk about what that means to you. Well, you know, it's a full circle moment for me. I had not attended the school board meeting where they were discussing whether I was going to be named valedictorian or not. Okay. A long time, right? (laughs) A long time ago. And so it brought me back to my roots of education. And I felt like what a perfect place for me to have my name attached Mm -hmm. because education opened up my world. You know, I don't believe that I would be serving our state in the role that I have now without education. And I want those students that come through that high school that will be named after me to know that they matter, that they are perfectly made in the way that they are, that they can grow and be anything that they want. And they have a support system that will have them, that will encourage them, and always stand with them. Mm-hmm. So it was a really important, special place for me. It was one that caused me to have to do some reflection that I hadn't done. And I'm just really excited to be able to have a reason to go and interact with the young people mm-hmm. because I learned so much from them and I get so much from who they are. And I'm just very, very excited and grateful for the recognition. It is a deep and true honor for me. Wow. I love that. So powerful. Yeah. I mean, to your point, the school is named after you and those kids get to walk in every day and know the history, to know your story as a pioneer, a trailblazer, you know, someone from a small town in Arkansas who believed in the power of education. It truly transformed your life and the communities that you've engaged with over your lifetime. And so I just know that they're going to reflect all that you are each day they walk into that school. And I'm so excited for you and actually excited for the state of Oregon, excited for the city of Portland. So thank you so much. Is there anything you want to share with the audience before I move into a fun lightning round of questions? Anything else that you might want to leave them with? You know, I just want people to know that I hope they meet this moment in time that we're in. It is really important that we all understand that we each have a responsibility to do our part to create this democracy that we all were taught 
mm-hmm. and that we're all in this together and that there's going to be some discomfort. There's going to have to be some transition, but often people don't get to choose their family of origin, but we get to choose the people we interact with. And so I want to use that analogy. Our country is going to be what we choose for it to be. And we need to totally step into it fully and roll up our sleeves and make that creation a reality. That's what I want to say to them. I love it. To everyone Thank you so heard. much. Wow. Thank you. So let's maybe move into a fun lightning round of questions. So I'm going to say a word or phrase. Okay. And then you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Your favorite food. Okay. I can tell you what my favorite food, no matter what it is. Chicken and dumplings. Ooh. You probably never thought about it. <laughs> no. A comfort food. A comfort food. A comfort food. Mm-hmm. No, you when you said I'm like, I remember the last time my grandma made chicken and dumplings. Mm-hmm. It was good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you took me back. I'm like, I may have to make a phone call to grandma when I come home, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> what is my favorite thing? I mean, you know, I know what I eat on a regular basis, but my favorite? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I love it. I love it. Okay, what's your guilty pleasure if you have one? Oh, Lord have mercy. You're so funny. <laughs> Uh, my guilty pleasure is my favorite songs. Oh, I'm a big music person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love music. It's a guilty pleasure, totally. I love that. Okay. All right, party at Adrian's house. Okay, duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your favorite book? Oh, there's so many. But I can tell you what my favorite book is right now. Okay. And it is The Source of Self-Regard by Toni Morrison. Ooh. I don't think I've I heard. went to go see her documentary, Pieces of Who I Am. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Leaving that documentary, totally being blown away about her life. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to Powell and buying all of her novels and other nonfiction she had written and purchased it from Powell. And literally a week or two after I got them all, she passed away. Mm. But her clarity, her focus in her writing is just phenomenal. And every time I read something of hers, I learn something new. And I love many of her novels, but this, The Source of Self-Regard, is very special because it's essays and speeches. So you get a really sense of who she is, you know, in her later years, mm-hmm. which is so profound. Oh, wow. I really got to get that one. Oh, it sounds amazing. It is. It is. Now, I can't imagine you have a, a lot of time to watch any TV, but I'm just going to ask anyway. What's your current Netflix addiction or maybe your favorite TV show? Okay. So with the pandemic, I got to watch some things. Okay. And so... I did love Queen Sono because I kind of like action drama stuff. I watched Frankie and Johnny because I think Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda as, you know, older women who were best friends and breaking the each group can do and say and like was fabulous. And I've watched a lot of movies. I mean, I have some movies on there. But the other thing that I love, I didn't watch on Netflix, but I watched when they had that free Hulu week was mm. Little Fires Everywhere. I really liked Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, my gosh. That, that was amazing. That was good. <gasps> I was like, oh, you know, because you're right. I don't watch a lot of television, but I can tell you this. No matter what, I do on demand. And the two shows that I do for on demand, no matter what, mm-hmm. are This Is Us. I love that show. And Queen Sugar. I love Queen Sugar. <laughs> I'm ready for both of them to come back with their next season, especially Queen Sugar. I'm like, come on. <laughs> I, I watch Queen Sugar and I watch This Is Us. Yeah, I those do. are two of my favorites too. <laughs> All right. Okay. And your dream vacation. Oh, you know what? I would like to take a trip to the motherland. I had a dream trip this past November and you were part right you saw me speak right before when we went to Bali. Mm-hmm. I love Bali. I really did. 
but I would like to go to the motherland and just spend a month just visiting different parts of the continent. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Both of those places you articulated are just amazing and are on my list as well. Well, Agent, it has been a joy connecting with you and sharing with you, my audience. I can't thank you enough and continue to do all that you're doing to bridge the gap and bring justice to us all. Love you dearly and thank you so much. Love you too. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time.